Well, we often talk about the uh, phrase uh, for such a time as this. That's what I've entitled the message here tonight. Comes out of the key verse in the book of Esther, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. But we're looking at Esther 4, 13 through 17 tonight. And uh, we are in that section of the outline. Whoops. There we are. Theme, God's providential care for his people. And now chapters 4 through 7, Esther's courage, Haman's plot backfires. Now, early in the year, on Sunday nights, we went through the book of Habakkuk. And uh, I thought that would be a great emphasis, you know, coming through a year of the, the COVID emphasis. And, and the theme of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is the just shall live by faith. And that's a good thing to emphasize no matter what is coming. And so when we got through the book of Habakkuk, I was thinking ahead a little bit, thinking, well, where do we go now? And I got to thinking about the book of Esther as we were right then kind of working as far as the possibilities, as far as, you know, moving over to 135 Bennett. And uh, so I thought no matter how it turns out, this would be a good study. It's on the providence of God and how will God providentially lead us. As I was thinking about this, of course, I had no idea at that point. Well, as it turned out, on June 6th, we had an all-church meeting, and there was enough money pledged to go ahead and purchase the property. And so I didn't actually start the study in Esther until about four weeks later in July, July 11th. But no matter, uh, the study of Esther uh, is a good study no matter when, it's, as we see the emphasis on the providence of God, and that applies uh, for all times. Well, tonight we come to the key verse, as I say, in Esther, is found in chapter 4, verse 14, which emphasizes the providence of God, but in balance it also emphasizes human responsibility. It's a beautiful balance here. Uh, the story is set in the context of the Persian Empire. The Jews had been in captivity in Babylon for about 70 years. Then Cyrus the Persian came on the scene and he gave an edict that allowed the Jews to return home. Well, this really was the will of God for them. The, the people of the promised land belong in the promised land. Uh, this is God's ideal will for them. It's been said that the people of Israel and the land of Israel are like soul and body. They belong together in a living relationship. I think that's true. But for whatever reason... Most of the Jews remained in the vast empire of Persia, estranged from their homeland. Well, in that context of pagan Persia, Esther became the king's queen, the pagan king's queen. And Mordecai, her uncle, attained a high position in the king's gate. And no one initially knew that they were Jews. And Mordecai really gave Esther strict orders not to let it out of the bag. Don't tell anybody that we're Jews. Could perhaps get in the way of, you know, how they had advanced to where they are, even in society. Well, as the story develops, we find an Agite named Haman uh, from the people of the Amalekites, who were the ancient cursed enemies of the Jews. And he was promoted to second in the kingdom, right under the king. And on top of that, the king gave a command that everyone should bow before this Haman. But there was one guy who wouldn't bow. His name was Mordecai. He was a Jew, and he refused to do so, telling his fellow peers that he was a Jew. 
Well, this so angered Haman that he concocted a plan to have all the Jewish people killed on a certain day. <clears throat> and then with a little monetary influence, he got the king to sign off on a law that called for the execution of all the Jewish people in the kingdom on this particular day. Well, Mordecai was broken over this development and sent word to Esther about what was happening, imploring her to go to the king and make supplication for her people. Well, Esther expressed pause, saying to come uninvited into the king's presence could invite death unless he held out the golden scepter to her. And as moody as he is, you know, who knows what might happen. And not only that, she says, it's been 30 days since the king invited me and called for her. Well, Mordecai then responded back to Esther, as we find in our study tonight, in chapter 4, 13 through 17. We pick up the narrative now at, at 4, 13. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. And uh, I think at this point, the best of, so to speak, of both Mordecai and Esther comes to the fore. Mordecai challenges Esther not to think merely about her own self-interests and to think, well, you know what? My little position is safe here in the palace. She says, don't think that way. He tells her she needs to realize that if she doesn't do the right thing, it will backfire on her and she will not escape even though she's in the palace. Mordecai is telling her that just being the queen won't mean that she will escape the fate that all the other Jews were facing. Life Application Bible, no one is secure in his or her strength in any political system. It's good to remember that. It is foolish to believe that wealth or position can make us impervious to danger. Deliverance comes only from God. How true that is. Well, at this point, Mordecai applies a little straight talk to bolster the courage of Esther to do what is right. And sometimes we need somebody to come alongside and do that, don't we? Yeah, uh, my mother did that to me a time or two, and uh, it was good for me. Uh, really, she had no easy choices. She could try to take care of self and die, as Mordecai is saying, going to perish. Or she could risk it all and try and save her people, which was very risky too, humanly speaking. There's a time to play it safe, but there's a time based on conviction to risk it all. And sometimes just playing it safe is not wisdom, just yellowy cowardice. This was a time for courage to step forward and do the right thing no matter the risk involved. And so Mordecai is seeking to fortify her in that courage. Well, that brings us now to the key verse of the entire book. Uh, here it is, chapter 4, verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I love a lot of things about this verse. There's a lot packed in here. Again, Mordecai is telling her this is no time to be silent. You know, there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. And he says, this is, this is no time to be silent. 
Earlier, recall, in chapter 2, verse 10, also in chapter 2, verse 20, we find that Mordecai had strictly charged Esther to be quiet and not say a thing about her heritage. But now things are different. And you know what I think is happening? I think God is at work through this whole situation to really shake Mordecai and Esther out of their, quote, just skate along quietly to get along compromised role. Because they were compromising that position. I mean, nobody even knew who they were. They were just skating along with the people of the world, of the world like, like they too were just worldlings. That's not the separated call of God on his people. So I think God's shaking them out of that in a drastic way. All along, they should have been standing for convictions that are proper as God separated people, but they were not. Instead, in compromise, they kept quiet. But now as God has put them into a position that he is forcing them to be silent no longer. And Mordecai realizes this in a big way. Even though the book of Esther makes no reference to God by name, <clears throat> yet he is implied everywhere. And certainly in this verse. Certainly here Mordecai implies that God will sovereignly bring deliverance. No matter what. Notice he says there, uh, if you are silent, completely silent, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. So he certainly seen somehow the Jews are going to get out of this. At the same time, uh, there's a strong emphasis on human responsibility. God will sovereignly bring deliverance. He doesn't say how this might happen, but he's thinking that's going to happen somehow or another. At the same time, there's a strong emphasis on human responsibility, telling Esther that if she remains silent at this time, she and her father's house, who might that be, by the way? She and her father's house. Who are her relatives that we know of? Well, yeah, Mordecai. Mordecai. He said, we're in trouble. We're in trouble, sister. Uh, if you remain quiet, well, we're all going to die here. That's what he's saying. So, therefore... There's great balance in this verse, I think, between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In the same light, again, we see deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. Uh, that's God's doing. He doesn't say where it might come from. I don't think he has a clue, but he's just believing it will happen. And yet in balance, he says, uh, perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's human responsibility. You need to act and you need to do it now. So we see uh, this, you know, what I call this kind of this mystery balance that we often see in Scripture. Human responsibility, remaining completely silent. There's pressure. You need to act. Uh, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Uh, now is your time to step forward. And yet divine sovereignty, uh, deliverance will arise. God's going to work. And if he doesn't use you, he'll use something else, somebody else. Something's going to happen. And for such a time as this would indicate God is in, in charge of the times and, and uh, placing people where they are and so forth. There is a time when taking action is not only responsible, uh, but the only right thing to do. You really don't have another choice. Uh, this was such a time. And Mordecai seems to apply the principle that you reap what you sow, which is a universal principle throughout Scripture. Mordecai reasons that to act so selfishly as to think only of self-preservation in this case, when the whole of your people are in jeopardy, could only reap disaster for such a person. 
That's pretty good theological reasoning, I think, by the way. And so Mordecai challenges Esther with an ultimatum that she must act or perish. She had no other choice. This was a time for courage and action based on principle. And such strength is ultimately tied to God and his word. I often think about Joshua, where God himself tells Joshua, kind of a daunting task to walk in the footsteps of Moses. But God told Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Love that promise. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. That you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it. To the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And then again, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wow, now that's quite, a, that's quite a talk from the Lord himself to Joshua. Uh, you saw the refrain there, be strong and of good courage. Three times, be strong and, and courageous. And right in the middle is this emphasis on the word of God. Uh, how do you remain strong? Well, I think it comes back to you're saturating your soul from the word, and the, and the word brings strengthening. Well, we often face a choice. Will we take courage in God and his word, or will we play the coward? Sometimes you have a major test, like Esther had. The idea that if Esther refused to act, still relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place seems to be steeped in biblical theology and a knowledge of God's covenant relationship with his people Israel. And many of the commentaries bring this out. This is as fundamental as it gets, by the way, in terms of sound theology, If God allows his people Israel to be destroyed, it would prove the God of the Bible is a fraud. Uh, He is either not a God who has the power to keep his promises, or he is not a God who is faithful. He's got a character problem. He doesn't keep his word, or he doesn't have the power to keep it. Uh, It's not good either way. In either case, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, would not be the God of the Bible as depicted in the scriptures. He would be an altogether different kind of a God. So it is impossible that the Jews will perish. And Mordecai seemed to recognize that. Uh, Mordecai implied to Esther, we as a family may perish, but the Jews as a whole are going to see relief and deliverance in some way, shape, or form. It's going to happen. Because God, who is the covenant God of Israel, cannot allow his people to perish. And that's consistent with what we see in places like Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37, thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, who gives a sun for a light by day and the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. 
God here mentions several things that it's impossible for anyone to do, except for God himself. I mean, who can change the reality of night and day, the pattern of night and day? Uh, You know, nobody. Who can change the ebb and flow of the tide? Who can measure the vast universe of the heavens? Who can search out the inner depths of the earth? The answer is absolutely no one. And yet God says, if any of these realities can be changed, then Israel shall cease from being a nation, which is God's way of saying, this is impossible. He's presenting these impossibilities and saying, that's how impossible it is that Israel cease from being a nation before me. The nation of Israel will never cease from being a nation. It's as sure as God's promise. As sure as God's character, as sure as God's name, Yahweh, which is his covenant name related to Israel. And Mordecai's statement reflects this awesome truth. Somehow, in some way, God is going to deliver the Jews from annihilation. And Mordecai had that conviction. It had to happen. And Mordecai knew it. He just didn't know how it might happen. Well, And then he floats this possibility to Esther, saying... Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He suggests that perhaps God has providentially orchestrated this whole thing so that Esther is in just the right place at just the right time to save her people. Perhaps this is her intended destiny and purpose. And notice he leaves it a little bit like he doesn't say, this is the will of God for you. He doesn't say that. He's kind of saying perhaps. Yet who knows? Who knows? Perhaps. The language there is interesting. Again, God is sovereign over all things, and yet this reality intersects here with human responsibility. These are two great intersecting truths related to God in this verse. Number one, God's covenant relationship is a guarantee that the Jews will not be completely annihilated. All such plans must fail. And they have, you know, Hitler's final solution didn't happen. He thought he was going to try it, but it didn't happen. Number two, God providentially controls all things, including the specific purpose that he has for us to fulfill. And yet, as implied by Mordecai, we can miss out on the blessing if we don't respond obediently. God's plan is never in jeopardy. But we can personally miss out in sharing in the blessing if we are not obedient Again, we are back to that tension between sovereignty and responsibility. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. So Esther took Mordecai's challenge to heart, and here is her answer. Verse 16, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, which was the capital city, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will likewise fast, will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What a response and what a great example. Uh, We have noted the compromise in the Jews in the land generally, and even that of Mordecai and Esther, as up to this point, they were not really willing to take a strong stand in keeping with their separated calling as the people of God. But now Esther, in this pressurized context, chooses to do what is right. And her resolve is strong. Uh, She asked Mordecai to get all the Jews, 
of the capital city together and fast three days and three nights for her. And she and her maids will likewise fast. Now it's interesting. You see what's missing in this verse? There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of God. There's only a mention of fasting. But almost everybody agrees that prayer is really the idea behind what's happening here. Can't imagine. Well, let's just be hungry for three days and see if that works. <laughs> that is totally inconsistent with everything we know about the people of God in the Old Testament. So, uh, although neither God nor prayer are mentioned, uh, both are, are implied here. In times of crisis, prayer and fasting were customary, uh, customarily practiced by the Jews in the Old Testament. Uh, NIV Study Bible. The omission of any reference to prayer or to God is consistent with the author's intention. Absence of any distinctly religious concepts or vocabulary is a rhetorical device used to heighten the fact that it is indeed God who has been active in the whole narrative. I think that's true. Uh, there's, a, there's kind of a, a rhetorical device that he's using here. Uh, you know, it's like, where is God? It's so obvious that God belongs here. Yeah, he does. I think that's his, his point. And yet it's kind of like God is working in spite of the people, and that's why he's kind of in the background here, you know, anonymously working, providentially working. But he's there. By the way, this short book uh, has ten feasts in it. The pagans were always feasting, it seems, in the book. The king liked the feast. We see that. She's going to invite him to a party. I mean, that's what you do. You want to ask a favor of the king here. He's an eater. He liked to eat. And, uh, but here we have fasting, indicating sorrow and brokenness before God. And the idea of fasting is focus. It is to singularly focus on God to the point of abstaining from normal eating and drinking. It signifies to God that one is totally serious in seeking him and his direction. Well, note that Esther, after this intense season of fasting, assumes prayer, will then go to the king, which she plainly says is against the law. To do so was to invite death. The only thing that could intervene and save her life in this situation was if the king held out his golden scepter, thus overruling the law of death to the one that tried to intrude into the king's presence without an invitation. Now, that's kind of interesting. It's against the law, she says. And we know what uh, Paul says in the New Testament, right? We know what Peter says in the New Testament. Uh, Paul in Romans 13 informs us that even pagan governments are ordained of God, to which the rest of the New Testament agrees. Sometimes we don't quite like these verses, but it, they're there. And note the emphasis that we find there. Romans 13, 1 and 2, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. We're talking a pagan context in the Roman Empire. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, even the pagan ones. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Boy, that's a pretty strong statement as far as obey the governing authorities. 1 Peter 2, 13, 14, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Again, pretty clear. Peter writes to the suffering saints, and he dares say things like this. 
Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. So the emphasis is strong that normally we are to obey those ruling over us. That, that's, we're, we're not vigilantes. Uh, we're not revolutionaries. Uh, we're trying to be good citizens here. That's the calling of God's people. But there are some exceptions presented in Scripture which boil down to these. If the governing authorities command us to act contrary to God and his word, then we must respectfully disobey. The principle is laid out by Peter, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So if there's a conflict here between what God says and what people say, we got to go with God. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) That's where we have to go. Now, we see in Scripture the precedent of disobeying the government in certain situations. Daniel defied the government's order to stop praying. Just went right on praying. The apostles defied the order to stop preaching the gospel. The midwives defied the governing authority when they were commanded to take the life of children. When life is at stake, there is a higher law in view. In this case here with Esther, the lives of millions of Jews was at stake. And in such a case, there is a higher law in view, which is the law of God based on his truth. Now, we should always be thoughtful about such things. But when life is at stake, not only is it appropriate to disobey, but there is a time when it's absolutely the right thing to do to save lives if it is in your power to do so. I think about the wisdom Uh, as found in Proverbs chapter 24, 11, and 12, deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? If you're in a position to do something about people, and boy, they're, they're stumbling towards death, and you say, well, you know, I didn't want to get involved. I didn't, I didn't know. I'm in my own business. No, no. Uh, that's not going to work. This was a courageous move by Esther. She wisely asked for three days of fasting, and then she would act with resolve and courage. There was the issue of the law. There was the issue of the king's uncertain mind. Uh, there was the reality of what happened to Queen Vashti. We know what happened to her. And indeed, there was a lot to dissuade her, but she was resolved. I love this from Warren Wearsby. He says, from the human point of view, everything was against Esther and the success of her mission. The law was against her because nobody was allowed to interrupt the king. The government was against her because the decree said she had to be, uh, was to be slain. Her sex was against her because the king's attitude towards women was worse than chauvinistic. The officers were against her because they did only those things that ingratiated themselves with Haman. In one sense, even the fast could be against her because going three days without food and drink would not necessarily improve her appearance or physical strength. Yeah. How do you look after three days fasting? (laughs) But Wearsby says, but if God is for us, who can be against us? And that is great. Uh, Note she did not know for sure what would happen, saying, if I perish, I perish. At least she would die trying to save her people. She's going to do the right thing, come what may. And she doesn't know for sure how this is going to end up. Mordecai also does not know. Uh, He says, perhaps you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows? They did not know for sure what would happen, even if they did the right thing. 
even if they looked to God, even if they acted in faith. The idea, you know, this, this false idea, this false narrative, that if you just have enough faith, it will always go uh, the way, the good way that you think it should go, uh, humanly speaking, is completely inconsistent with the scriptures. Often we just don't know. Uh, I love these verses in Hebrews. It's good to be reminded of them. Uh, you know, we got the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about these people who had great victories through faith. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of, of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Put me in that camp right there. I like those verses. We're, we're really moving forward. It's powerful. It's great. But that's kind of the middle of the story. Others, these two are people of faith. Who through faith, others, other people of faith, were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Kind of fits with what we were talking about this morning, by the way. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. All these acted in faith. And some had what would be considered very triumphal outcomes in life. While others met their demise, only, of course, to obtain a better resurrection beyond this life. The point is, we don't always know what the will of God will be in any given situation. Even if we do the right thing. Maybe we'll be a martyr if we do the right thing. That could happen. James says this. Nope, wrong way, sorry. James 4, 14 and 15. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Right? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. You do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. When Daniel's three friends defied the government's order to be involved in idolatry, The king gave them one more chance to bow. And this was their response, and it's classic. Daniel chapter 3, 17 and 18. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Well, that took some boldness. You're talking talking holy courage here. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. And I would say, yeah, one way or another. Maybe through, you know, taking us on. But, but then they said, but if not. Wasn't that interesting? He will. We're expecting him to deliver us. But if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We're going to do the right thing no matter what. This hits just the right balance of faith and yet not presumption. We ultimately don't know how God will act and yet we know that ultimately he does work all things together for good to those who love him. What we need to do, just like Esther did here, is decide to do the right thing, bathe it in prayer, and then trust God for the outcome, wherever that takes us. Verse 17, so Mordecai went his way and did according to all Esther commanded him. In conclusion, life application Bible makes a good application here. God was in control, yet Mordecai and Esther had to act, right? 
You say, well, I, I need a job, so I'm sitting here praying that the phone will ring. No, you need to go to the phone and use it. <laughs> uh, yeah, God's in control, but yet Mordecai and Esther had to act. We cannot understand how both can be true at the same time, and yet they are. God chooses to work through those willing to act for him. We should pray as if all depended on God and act as if all depended on us. That's kind of an interesting uh, tension there, isn't it? All right, well, let's uh, have special music, shall we? Yeah? Yeah, let's do. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close us in prayer. You know, I... I